Good morning. Well, are the nations glad this morning? Good. So many nations represented in our church house this morning and has been the case for decades. We are so grateful for the opportunity to see God fulfill his promise in our midst. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Psalm 95. I'm going to be moving around from uh, scriptures, one scripture to another, but the primary text this morning is Psalm 95. The title of this morning's sermon is The Place of Worship with God's People. It seems like an obvious point that the place of worship is with God's people, but unfortunately, Many Americans do not understand this. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Peter says to the Christian church, but you are a chosen race. That's an important word these days. A chosen race. Would that the church get this right. You are a new race. I don't care what the world tells you. You are a chosen race if you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The word there, you, is in the second person plural, and if you're from the south, you can translate that as y'all. And all y'all is, is a contraction of you and all. You all. It means... You all, us all, we all, all of us, you all are God's people. Once you all had not received mercy, but now you all have received mercy. We are to declare this among the nations. It is our responsibility. We defined worship last week as the outward expression expression of the heart's estimation of God's worthiness. A helpful illustration might be, as you drive along the streets of Miami, post-Hurricane Irma, you see a lot of trees that are green, but they have spatterings of dead leaves, brown leaves within them. And you know that there's a broken branch that is separated from the big tree because you can see the leaves. Now, you don't know how bad it is. You don't know how bad that broken branch really is and how far it goes, but you can see the fruit. You can see that the leaves are dead. And our worship of God expresses what our hearts believe about him, 
whether there is life or there is death on the inside. If there is life, there is vibrancy, worship that all can see. And where there is no life, the only thing on the outside are dead and dry leaves. Jesus said as much when he talked about fruit. He said, good trees bear fruit. Worship is the outward expression of the heart's estimation of God's worthiness. Worship is an entire world of life expression by which God's people do everything to glorify Him. We have partitioned our lives between Sunday and Monday through Saturday. And we believe that the worship of God is something we only do maybe once a week. But the worship of God is to be done even in eating and drinking, even in the small things. Worship is to be conducted according to God's word and is not to be expressed in ways that are contrary to divine prescription. Furthermore, and this is the main thrust of this morning's sermon, the chief expression of worship is communal, that is, together in a community whereby God's people unite for the single purpose to glorify the name of Christ Above all names. This is our definition. Let's pray this morning. Father, where has your worship gone? This nation was once founded by men and women who were worshiping you so much so that they wanted to worship you freely that they put their families on a boat and went across the entire ocean, the tumultuous seas, that they might worship you freely. And today, we dishonor their sacrifice when we don't worship you together. What a freedom we have in this country that we can come out in the open, unlock our doors, and sing as loudly as we can that death has been defeated in Christ. And yet, Lord, we don't do it. We neglect worship of you. God, I fear you're going to take away that right. We won't know what we have until it's gone, and I am afraid that that's what's coming. A little law here, a little law there, and then, Lord, our right is taken away, and, Lord, I plead with you that before that day comes that our people might recognize the wonderful privilege to worship you Lord, I pray that our people will heed your word this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a problem, a problem today, and it's that the people of God aren't worshiping him. Someone says, too many songs, but not enough singers. 
That's the problem that's facing many congregations these days, says Tony Payne, who is a worship leader and professor of music at Wheaton College. Whether a church plays hymns or the latest worship songs, fewer people want to sing along, he says. There are a lot of people standing there mute during worship. John Stott, as told through the story of Keith Getty, says that in the 21st century, there are more Christians in more countries than ever before, yet the average Christian in the world knows less about the Bible than the average secularist in the West did in the 1950s. In other words, in the 1950s, lost people knew more about the, about the God of the Bible than Christians do today. During that time, children sang hymns in school assemblies and had religious instruction in schools. Those things added to the nominal church-going that took place meant that the average non-Christian in the 1950s knew more Bible stories and Christian doctrine than the average evangelical today. His point is that we know God and we learn about God through song. It is a declaration of His glory. If you want to memorize anything, attach a song to it. This is why we teach children the alphabet with a song. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, right? This is why we teach children that Jesus loves them with song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Now they know not only that Jesus loves them, but that the source of the, the knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ is the word of God. Because song is so powerful that it can teach us anything. My professor of Greek has taught us to learn Greek in song. Trevin Wax, a blog and Christian evangelical thinker, says, How would you respond if someone in your congregation said, It is easier to download a podcast or watch the sermon live online from the comfort of my bed on a Sunday morning. Who's to judge me? That person, says Wax, seems to think that the only thing going on at church is the delivery of information from one brain to another. As long as I get the message, I'm just fine. What an anemic understanding of what happens when the congregation gathers together. We are formed through the songs we sing, says Wax, our interactions with and service to other believers, our seeing one another together in submission to the Word of God, and our coming together to the Lord's table. None of those can be done in isolation. If we grow, we grow together. I love that he says, if we grow, we grow together. That is what we emphasize right there on our logo. Every logo of our church will state growing together. If we grow, we grow together, not apart from one another. You never see a leaf that doesn't grow that's a part of a vine. 
with many other leaves. He says, don't let your people get this backward. Listening to sermons online is optional for the Christian, but gathering with the church is not. Switch those around and we are left with a discipleship process that is information heavy and tailored only to our own preferences, desires, and routines. The problem is our hearts are hardened against God. I don't know what the reason is. It, there, there are many reasons. It might be apathy, it might be anger, but the fact is, all I know is I'm seeing a bunch of dead branches inside a tree. And when I get it, maybe we can get there one-on-one -on -one and look at it and see what the problem is, but there, folks, there are dead branches in the tree. You know what God does to dead branches? He prunes them. I don't like this sermon, Pastor Summers. Man, I wish the word of God didn't say that. And then I wouldn't preach it. But it does. He prunes dead branches. We don't desire to worship him anymore because we do not love him. You say, I love God, I say it all the time. But that's as good as the adulterous husband who tells his wife he loves her. If he loves her, he wouldn't be adulterous. Love is not what you say. Love is what you do. If you love God, you worship him. We are living in a day where a person can identify as a Christian and not even be certain if God exists. Pew Research found that in 2015, only 66% of American evangelicals, while only 64% of Catholics, were absolutely certain that God even existed. Two-thirds of Christians are the only amount of people who believe in God, a third of Christians aren't even sure, how can you be a Christian and not believe in God? It is the foundation of our faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't love what you don't even believe exists. The trend, however, is even more striking among adults under 30, where only 51% of Americans believe that God exists. The place of worship is with God and his people. But when the people of God aren't united in a common belief, there can be no worship. We have to believe and agree the same things. You have your Bibles, turn in them to Psalm 95. And I want to read through this passage this morning, and I want to explain as I go along. Psalm 95. <laughs> 
Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Notice that the very beginning of this psalm is directed to us. David is writing this for himself and God's people. Us is a first-person plural. It means me and you all. All of us who are God's children are to worship God and to praise him. God has redeemed for himself not simply a person but a people and his covenant blessings to Abraham were not simply for Abraham but that all nations might be blessed through him. All nations. Look with me if you would at Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God makes his covenant with a group of people. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's a social contract. And the very fact that God even makes a covenant is his grace. But that God does with so many is wondrous. It is simply the fact that God makes covenants with people. God told Abraham in Genesis 22, 15, and 18 that all nations would be blessed through him. In Galatians 3.8, Paul takes that and says it is fulfilled in our midst when not only are Jews blessed, but that every people from every language now is called to glorify God. We look different on the outside. Right? We, we learn this in song when we're a child. Red and yellow, black and white. We learn this when we're a child. We look different, but what unites us is one God. We are united around him and what he has done for us. And through the one man, Christ Jesus, we are all made righteous. So that despite your color... Despite your creed, despite how smart you are or how much money you have, God loves us because he loves Christ. In Christ, there is no partiality. In other words, racism is solved. Because God says black the same way he says white. And he saves Puerto Rican the way he saves American. 
He saves us all the same way. And no, he does not love one race more than another. All nations are blessed. We sing together to the one God who blesses everyone. The point is that God has redeemed for himself a people. Let us, therefore, the command to worship is to all God's people to worship him together. Let us, says Psalms. Let us. Says here, O come, let us sing to the Lord. The very beginning of the passage begins with the word come, and David begins with a command to come because the very act of coming to God is foreign to the rebellious heart that runs from him. In other words, it's not obvious to human beings that they should come to God. Not since the fall is it obvious that human beings should come. We do not understand today. In fact, the Bible says that our hearts are rebellious against God. Paul says it this way, quoting the scriptures, no one seeks after God. The reason why David has to tell God's people, come, is because that's not obvious to our rebellious hearts. What is obvious is to stay home. What is obvious is to go to the beach. What is obvious is to run from God. But like a child needs a command from their parents, David simply says to us, come. Anybody who has a child knows that children have to be told when they are young what to do, and they always ask why. I have one child who loves to ask why. I won't, name who she, I won't name her, but she loves to ask why. And what we try and tell her is, trust, trust me, you may not understand why I've called you to do this, but trust me, do it. God has called us to worship him together. You may not understand it, but obedience should be the basic understanding for all Christians. Whatever your level of maturity is, come should be enough between God and his children. Is the Lord among us or not? Ask the, the, the rebellious Israelites in Exodus 17, 17. We were told to make a joyful noise. When we come, we make a joyful noise to the Lord with psalms of praise. David's command is not only that we must come to the Lord, but he commands how we are to come to the Lord. When you come, enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Psalms of praise. you got to know how to come to God. Our hearts are, someone said, our hearts are, I think it was Calvin, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We make one idol after another. And God begins the Ten Commandments with two basic commandments that every human being has to learn. Not only do we come to God, but we come to God this way, not in graven images. You say, okay, so I don't carve an image. The point of a graven image is that we think we know how to worship him better than he knows how he should be worshipped. 
He says, worship me in spirit and in truth. And so not only do we come to God, but the way we come to God is with, as David says here, come to him with a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving, not grumbling, not complaining, with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him. Someone always says, well, I can't sing and my noise isn't joyful. God hears the song of your heart. I heard several of you singing behind me. Actually, I shouldn't go with this because it would only be confined to this area right here. But let's just say you made a beautiful noise to the Lord. It did my heart good to hear you sing. I'm glad to know that after an entire week of political banter and division that some groups are still united. I am glad to hear you sing. God hears your heart. Don't come to the Lord like the Israelites did, asking is the Lord among us or not. Praise him. Sing psalms of thanksgiving. Verses 3 and 7 tell us this. Why? For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So since it's not good enough for the average Christian to just obey God's command to worship him, Scripture tells us why we ought to worship him. God has revealed himself to us through his works and his word. First off, it assumes that God is the only being of our worship, worthy of our worship. The only being that should ever deserve our worship is God Almighty. Chooks made a great point in BFG today, and that is that every one of us is made to worship. We will worship something. And I gave the example, an illustration of if you've ever seen people who run into, like, like the little girls uh, who see, like, their favorite singer, you know, what's the, what are the girls like today, One Direction? And they see them, and they're fainting, and they're throwing their hands up, and they're crying. They wrote that song, and they dance so cute, and they just are in love with them, and then when they meet them, they're crying, and they're just trying to touch them. It's almost exactly like the crowds were with Jesus, except that person's not the Son of God. Or it's like your favorite athlete, man. Oh, you remember bottom of the ninth when he hit that home run and then you meet him and you talk to him. It's amazing. You tell him all about the great things that he's done. Can you get his autograph? Can you get a picture with him? You'd do anything with this person. You'd go anywhere. If this person asked you to come with him on a road trip, you'd leave your family and do it because after all, they are the object of your worship. You're gonna worship something. You're going to worship something. Maybe for most of us, it's our jobs. I can't be there on Sunday because <laughs> I got to work. Okay, are you a nurse? Someone going to die of a heart attack if, you don't, if you're not there? And if not, you can be here. You a police officer? 
You protecting and serving? Then if not, you can be here. It's interesting. The generation before us miraculously found a way. I don't know whether it was that they found a way or they were just more committed. I think it's the latter. God is worthy of our worship, though. Worthy to put all these other things and all these other gods aside that we might worship him. Why? Because every created thing is contingent while the creator is absolute. Everything that is made is contingent upon the necessary creator God. Without God, it wouldn't exist. The created thing is morally compromised, but the creator is holy. The creator thing is dead, but the creator is life. The created thing always fails, but the creator's love endures forever. That's why God is worthy of your worship. No other thing in this world is worthy of your worship. It will all be blown away like chaff in the wind, but God's love endures forever. God has revealed himself by what has been made. Psalm 19 says, David says in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. David is saying, God tells us who he is through the creation. William Paley an English philosopher, said that the world, the universe, displays the order and glory of God. He says, imagine that you're walking in a field one day and you come across a rock, just a simple rock. You pick up that rock and you take a look at it, and as you look at it and you consider it, there's nothing in the rock that would compel you to believe that it hasn't been here forever and ever and ever. It's just a rock. He says, but imagine you walk on a little bit further and you come across a watch and you've never seen a watch before and you pick up that watch and you begin to look at all of its intricate parts. You flip it over and you open up the back and you see that there are gears, several interrelated parts, all working together for one purpose, which is to tell time. I don't know exactly how many parts there are in a watch, but I know that the human eye has to perform 1,100 functions in order for you, to, a second in order for us to see. 1,100 functions. It's called irreducible complexity because if one of those things is not there, the organism doesn't work. It's like a mousetrap. You gotta have five parts to a mousetrap. A platform, a catch, a hammer, a spring, and you got to have a bar, excuse me, uh, well, four is good, go with four. Did I get them all? What's the fifth? Food, there you go, cheese. If you take away one of those parts, the organism won't work. 
the universe is balanced on a razor's edge. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know what the scandal of Darwinism is? It's that it robs God of the glory. There's nothing wrong with the mechanism of evolution. If God had decided that we came from lower primates and declared his glory on us when we did evolve, that would have been fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the point of evolution. The point of evolution is to glorify chance. That's the point. That's the problem. To say time plus matter plus nothing equals everything. That's the problem. Our glory comes from God. And God says, listen, I have made nature. Look at nature and glorify me. But not only that, read his word. David goes on, if you read through Psalm 19, in the second half of the chapter, he goes on to tell us that God has also revealed himself in its law. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of, a testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. When God's word is followed, it always works. It never fails. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for rebuking or for teaching, training, excuse me, teaching, rebuking, Correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. The problem with our Bibles isn't that we, we don't read them, it's that we don't put them into practice when we close them. James says we're like a man who looks in the mirror walking away forgetting what he looks like. That mirror that you have in your bathroom is to correct that thing hanging from your nose. And if you look at that mirror and you don't fix it, you're a fool. And a nasty one at that. God's word says, look at it. People ask me all the time, how do we know which scripture's the right one? You got, you got the, the uh, Quran and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the teachings of Buddha. How do you, how do you know? Because the word of God is inspired by him and it's useful. You know what? The other ones aren't useful. The word of God is useful. You want to solve your marriage? Obey the word of God. You know why Dave Ramsey's economic system works? Because it's built upon the Christian principle of self-discipline. You know why America was great? Because it was built upon Christian principles of hard work. That if a man does not work, he should not eat. That's why America was great. That's why the West was great. And what makes the West bad today is we're all walking around with a handout. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And we give nothing. And I'm only speaking from the words of an atheist, Max Weber who said it was the Protestant work ethic that made America great. But the Protestant work ethic was not based in arbitrary thoughts, but the working word of God. God reveals himself in his word. Why should he be praised? Because his word is true. 
Scripture can be trusted. But what's happened? Why then don't we worship Him? Here's the tragedy. Look at verses 8. It says here, in verse 7, it says, He's our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, the word there is heed. If you heed His instruction, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. How is it that the people of God can amen every verse up until this point? The unfortunate reality is that our history is riddled with the fact that we put God to the test and do not glorify Him as God. History of the church, the history of God's people is that they forget His great works. They had seen my work, He said. For 40 years, though, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Translation, if you don't bear fruit, I'm cutting down the tree. Verses 8 and 10 warn against testing God by forgetting Him. Go to Exodus 17. Look at verses 1 through 7. The Israelites have just seen the power of God. Darkness for days, gnats, locusts, flies, water turned to blood, eventually the death of the firstborn. The greatest ruler in all the world was defeated by the power of God. Slaves were let go by their master. They were taken to the Red Sea, and at the Red Sea, the entire sea was separated that they would cross on dry land, and the Egyptians were drowned in it. And here they are in the wilderness, and they're a little thirsty. We forget to worship God over the smallest things. The first moment somebody doesn't talk to us in church, we're out of there. Forget the fact of the love that the church has shown, but the one moment they disagree with us, we're gone. God's people. This is what happens. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
It's not that they were thirsty. It's that they didn't believe God was going to do anything for them. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? As a side, I'm afraid that Americans are saying the same thing. Oh, the days of the monarch were much better than this thing called freedom. We long for something else. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. You struck the Nile, you separated the waters there. Have I not shown, says the Lord, that I'm Lord of the waters And now you're a little parched, you're a little thirsty, and now you want to know where I am. Take that same staff that parted the waters and get them a cup of something to drink. Look at this. Compared to the ocean, to the Red Sea, what is this? An insignificant drop. Take the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Oh, God is so gracious. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Those two words there, Massa means testing, and Meribah means quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Even as they drink the cup of his grace, they're still asking the question, is God among us or not? This passage that we're reading this morning warns us against the problem that we do not worship God for what he has done. The one who fails to reject God, verse 11, tells us that he shall not enter his rest. Romans 1, 24 tells us how big of a deal this is. Romans 1, 24 and 25, when it says, though they knew God, they did not worship him as God, they did not glorify him as God, It says here that God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worship is a big deal to God. All cursing. All sin, all wickedness and suffering is the result of not worshiping God. What God does is he gives us the idols of our heart and says, fine, let them give to you your provisions. Do you want me or a cup of water? 
Today, we stand as the redeemed of God, the product of the work of the cross, which compels God's people to come together to sing in one voice of his salvation. In Psalm 96, verse 2, David once again sings this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Why? Tell of his salvation from day to day. Let me ask you, church, how can we sing the songs of salvation with people who don't know the words? Is God's love for us in Christ not enough to compel you to enter together into his house with thanksgiving? Is that not enough? Does that not stir your heart? God has redeemed us. We share the same experience, and therefore we must sing the same song, the song of our redemption. Do you know why things like the national anthem are so important? Because they unite us. The world gets that. That's what we're debating right now in the world. Should we or shouldn't we? And ultimately we understand that the one thing that should unite us as a nation should be our national anthem. The world gets that when we don't sing it, what we're saying is that we're not connected. We're not together. Church, when you don't worship with the body, you are saying, I'm not with them. You say, that's not what I intend to say. Intentions mean nothing. All I know is what I see. And when the church does not worship together, we say we are not one body united under one head. Church, I ask you this morning, if the nation and our flag and our national anthem are important, how much more important are the songs of the redeemed? When we sing and when we worship together, we declare to the world the glory of God's salvation. I leave you with this passage. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. You can't do this on the boat. All the earth is to sing together. You can't do this at work. You're to do it with your brothers and sisters. You can't do it from your bed watching a podcast. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Church, we are to worship God together that the world might fear God. Let's pray. God, your word is mighty and powerful. Your word compels us, Lord, of the importance of the body. 
Lord, as human beings, it's so obvious to us that when we stand for something, we want to stand together. We want to unite around something. Every company in America has a mission that every employee is to look at and to believe in that mission. And if they don't believe in that mission, they're to be gone. Those who are a part of that, they're to believe in the one mission. Football teams have stadiums of 60 and 70,000 seats so that all of the fans can come and praise the team. And Lord, we can't even fill our churches. We can't even fill our pews and our chairs. Lord, we have truly in this nation rejected the creator for the created thing. God, it is my prayer that the people who are yours will take worship seriously and will worship and glorify your name together. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.